Hello, Mark Pesci. How are you? Good morning. Very well, thank you. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Uh, what weird and wonderful things are you going to tell us about today? Let's <laughs> start with, uh, well, is it wonderful? What do you make of Apple's Vision <laughs> Pro? Well, so I have not had a chance because it hasn't been released in our part of the world yet, Catherine. I haven't had a chance to put one on, but there are people that I know here who are smuggling them in. So within the next week or two, I'll get to try it. It's Apple's VR headset. But of course, the funny thing is Apple has banned any use of virtual reality or VR or augmented reality or AR or mixed reality, which are the normal terms of art. They want us to all call it spatial computing which is not an Apple-specific term. It's actually been in use for 40 years or so. But they really want people to think that they've kind of reinvented the field with the Apple Vision Pro. Now, it is a normal VR headset. You put it on, you see things, it generates images, you can play all of your normal smartphone apps. So at one level, you could take a look at this as Apple has finally gone the rest of the way and just slapped a smartphone onto your face, right? At one level, that's what the Apple Vision Pro is. Then there's this other side of it, which we call pass-through. So there are cameras on the Apple Vision Pro that are pointing out into the room that you're in. And they will bring that video image into the headset so that it looks as if the headset is actually see-through, even though it's not. And so this can create then what we would call augmented reality, where you see the real world, but with additions that are being generated inside the headset. To all accounts, Apple's done a good job at that. Maybe not the best job out there, which is surprising because of the resources that they've thrown at this, but they've done a good job. But what we saw, because it was released only on Friday and over the weekend in the United States, we saw a lot of, how shall we put it, perhaps um, daring perhaps foolish young men, slap it on and take it out in public and do things like drive their Tesla Cybertruck around while wearing this headset. So technically, they shouldn't be able to see the road. They shouldn't be able to see the car, but they could because of the pass-through for as long as that was working. And they would post videos of this to YouTube afterward to show everyone how cool the headset was and how cool they were which prompted the U.S. Secretary of uh, Transport, Pete Buttigieg, to issue a very stern warning that people should not be wearing VR headsets when they're driving automobiles. Good grief. Now, just roll me back a couple of things. What, yes. what am I actually going to see? Give me an example. I clamp these things on, and yes. I've got different options, right, for what I can see. You've got all your... You've got all your apps. You think about all your apps on your home screen, on your smartphone. You'll see all your apps floating in space around you. You can, and so it's 3D. one of the things it's, that it's absolutely three D, right? Yeah. Absolutely 3D. One of the things that Apple has done brilliantly well, and the thing that we would really give them credit for, is they track your hands. So rather than having to hold your hands out in front of you and wave them around, which is everyone learned that from Minority Report, the movie, it's actually very bad because it's very hard for you to hold your hands out in front of you for long periods of time. You can hold your hands in your lap, and Apple's cameras will capture that in your lap as you make very modest gestures, and you can tap, and you can drag, and you can do, and you can pinch and do all the things that you would do on your smartphone, but you're doing them just from your hands in your lap to maneuver in the Apple Vision Pro. So you can open up an app, you can you know, watch a YouTube video, you can join a Teams meeting if you want. What, so, what's or connecting my meeting. hand to the device? 
It's it is literally just that the camera. So the, so the, the device itself. Movements. Okay. It has cameras pointing down at your hands that are very high resolution and that are very sensitive to the movements of your hands. This is just getting crazy, isn't it? Next question. <laughs> One of the yes. issues early on with uh, VR, AR, etc., was motion sickness, right? Yes. Yes. We, have we gone ahead in huge leaps and bounds with the body going, what the is happening right now um, and responding with motion sickness. So I, I will tell you, as someone who did not get motion sick when I was doing VR research 30 years ago, and I now very easily get motion sick, even in very good VR, right? What we've seen is videos with young men who generally are more resistant to motion sickness than almost everyone else using these systems and not getting motion sick. What I want to see is a 60-year-old guy like me or someone who is historically given to car sickness or motion sickness, put this on and see how long they feel comfortable. Apple has clearly indicated that it is possible that you can feel motion sick with this device. They said, if, if you do, take it off, rest for a while, all of these things. So we don't think that they've conquered that problem. But researchers are also taking a look at what it's actually doing to your vision to be wearing a head-mounted display for long periods of time in this kind of mixed reality. This is some of the real world, some of the app world. When you're mixing that together, what that what is that doing to your perception of depth? What's that doing to your perception of the world? Well, we know that we are getting a rather large uh, rise in myopia amongst youngsters yeah. that's being presumed to the amount of device use that they are doing theorized as being uh, yeah. as being the case but you're right that brain that inner ear uh, and um, the visual um, and uh, balance centers of the brain uh, yeah. have had a few hundred thousand years or a few tens of thousands yeah. of years of evolution to sort things out. You wonder how this is going to get knocked around. I wonder how our perception of reality is going to get further knocked around, whatever reality is these days, Mark. And, and I wrote a book exactly on this subject in 2021, right, called Augmented Reality, where I took a look at all of these questions, because really what we have right now, Catherine, are a lot of questions, but we also are trusting companies like Meta and Apple to make good decisions about how they will augment reality, how they will protect or share the data, because in an augmented reality headset, we're not just tracking the world around you, we're also tracking where you're looking. And so we can tell that you're looking at this ad or at that naked lady or at whatever it might be in the augmented world in a way that we can't do on a web browser, in a way we can't do in the real world. So it's really giving us a very accurate read of what you really think as opposed to what you would tell people you think. Where does it end, Mark? Well, it'll be your last book if you can come up with that one. You think it's got, I know you haven't personally experienced it, but do you think this time it's going to go from being the crazed enthusiasts and the early adopters to something bigger? This is very much for developers. It's very, it got a very high price. It's still a little clunky. You can see Apple getting ready, but in the same way that the first iPhone was kind of, we, we, we forget the first iPhone didn't have an app store. It just had a couple of built-in apps. Now that was enough to get it to take off and get it really popular, but it's nothing like smartphones like we use them today. So it's probably closer to that where this represents a beginning point. It has to get smaller. It has to get more comfortable. It has to get more useful. Are we on that path. I think we need to give that a couple of months to be sure, but it feels like it. 
Okay, now a deep fake, uh, and we're learning more yeah. and more about those. But how did it end up costing someone forty million dollars? So this happened in Hong Kong last month, and there was a Zoom call with an employee at a firm in Hong Kong. And the Zoom call had several of the other employees of the firm, including the CFO. And over the course of the call, the employee was instructed by the CFO, we're making a purchase. We, we need you to deposit this these funds into these bank accounts around Hong Kong. And the employee sort of had some questions, but everyone on the call was in agreement. And the CFO said, do this. And so he got off the call and he did it. And it turns out that basically everyone else on the call except for him was a fake generated image with AI. So we're talking about a, a true deep fake where an entire person is being represented in you know 2D on a screen, but in real time. So as a video image created by voice and by image with AI. And that that was compelling enough to convince this person that they were talking to the CFO. What on earth um, can you do to combat this? Because this is going to become more... And, and also, it's other things. I've heard of scams where, and goodness, could you tug on the heartstrings anymore? We've all we've all had that thing where you get your desperate um, you know, uh, email from your daughter overseas or your son overseas, and, it, and it's a scam. But when you've got someone yeah. actually accurately replicating their voice, not from having recorded their voice, but from just picking a few snippets up from online, from YouTube or whatever... Yeah. What on earth yeah. is going to prevent this just going off, and off the I, scale? I just want to say, Catherine, your voice is very widely available. My voice is very widely available. So you and I are at some greater risk than the general public where people would have to search harder. And that's something that you and I also need to consider. Now, when we're talking about how do we prevent this, I want to refer to an extremely old technique, one that is from the Old Testament. All right. So there was a particular village that uh, that the Israelites were about to wipe out in Canaan, and they used a password, which was a word that the Israelites could pronounce, but the Canaanites could not. The word was shibboleth. All right. And so essentially what they did was they established a password and the Israelites could tell who the Canaanites were because they couldn't say the word shibboleth correctly. My grandmother told me there's a similar word in Sicilian for chickpea, chechi, which I can't pronounce right because I'm not Sicilian, but Sicilians can pronounce correctly. So it can identify you as being part of the in-group or not. And it feels like if we're going to have these highly mediated conversations online, then people are going to need to start to establish some passwords that would allow them to understand that, yes, it's okay to hand someone these keys because they are who you think they are. Yes, but... You can't have everyone yeah. you deal with knowing your passwords. <laughs> no, you're going to have different. You're going to have different. You're going to have different shibboleths for every person oh, in every Lordy. conversation. I think. I know. I know. But it feels like if we can't trust the images on the screen, we are going to need to fall back to some other way it, of being. It, it able might have to, to be tell. swears, Mark. We each have <laughs> a particular way of swearing, <laughs> particular yes. go-to word, and we don't use those on the radio for the most part. Yeah, that might be the. That might be my option. All right. Yes, and it could, it could easily be that you'll have an AI on your side listening to the conversation, trying to figure out if the other person's word usage is typical for them, mm -hmm. their swears or their, their, their diction. I don't know if throwing more technology at this problem is going to solve a technology problem. Mm. Uh, look, it was an issue with the banks, and uh, we were discussing this last year, um, access to your online banking using voice control. Yeah. I had a very lively conversation oh, with no. our um, – uh, um, 
Workbridge um, chief executive, who's also a, a guru on assistive technology, saying yeah. this is this this technology is necessary, right? Um, and then someone else is going, this this mm. thing got my voice a handy, mm. Mm. just yeah. like that. Yeah. I don't know the answers yeah. to you. Well. You think these problems through very carefully and you actually, one of the things we try to do is we try to make these things frictionless now. So it's really easy to do all this stuff. We actually need to take a look at when we need to add friction to these systems, when we need to make it hard. You can't just walk into your home. You have a key. If you lose your key, you need to call a locksmith. There are a whole bunch of reasons for all of that friction. We need to think about designing our online systems with similar themes. Okay. Now, AI learns with baby. Well, why not? It's the way a baby learns. And actually, that's probably the best place for AI to be because we know babies' brains are just seething with more neurons they can actually cope with. They they learn so fast they have to start shedding neurons to sort of calm the farm. It's not exactly what you'd read in a textbook, but it's broadly right. So what's AI doing learning with the baby? So there's a lovely... um baby boy in South Australia named Sam. And for a period of time while he was growing, so say I think when he was just about a couple months old to where he was about two years old, for about 1% of the time that he was awake, he wore this cute little helmet with a webcam on it. And the video images captured both him where he was looking and him l- looking at the environment and being taught what things were. And they then fed that video into an AI system. And the AI system was then able to start to make a associations between things that it was seeing on the video and things that were in the world. So it could figure out what a bowl was. It could figure out what a ball was. Interestingly, it couldn't figure out what a hand was because the AI doesn't have hands. Like babies work that out very quickly because they're attached to them. But the AI was able to see things that were not attached to it and understand it. But things that are part of our bodies, it doesn't have the same ability to be able to recognize. But we can see that this becomes a new way to rather than feeding an AI the entire Internet, which is how we do it today, maybe let an AI learn in a very similar way to how a child discovers the world. That makes sense to me. It's the beginning, and it's a good paper. It's making the rounds right now as a very interesting technique. So I think you're going to probably see a lot of webcams on babies' heads over the next couple of years. Does anyone ask the baby if this is okay? (laughs) There's a lovely photo of the baby in the article, and he looks very happy with his – because he's got a little helmet on. You know, kids wear helmets all the time, and he's got a little webcam on it. So he looks very happy. Actually, some of the hats that we put on babies – come on, it's – yeah (laughs) – all right. Uh, just finally now, Google stops backing up the web. This sounds like a buried lead. Um, I get yeah. very nervous when anything is not backed up. Uh, do we need to – it's the old cached copy, right, or cached or whatever the word is. Yeah, yeah. So, in fact, it's it's a little bit more nuanced like that. Google's always kept a copy of the web. They use it for searching and to understand that. But they've always made that cached copy available. And what they've done is they've taken away the availability of that copy. Apparently, Google is still keeping it for themselves. Uh But they don't let you go and access the cached copy. And in fact, journalists in particular find that cached copy very important because if someone's trying to change something on the web because they're – Yes, because they're rewriting history, and that's never happened on the internet. The cache will be the place where that is revealed. And so making that cache harder to find means it's going to be harder. Now, there is a lovely institution called the Internet Archive, which is uh, basically a 
a public institution, you should support it by donations if you can. They keep a backup of the web as well. They're concerned by this, but they're hoping that Google will actually offer a link to the Internet Archive's own cache copy of the web inside the search inside the search results. They don't know that that will happen, but that would be one way for us to be able to recover that capability. Look, we all know, and it's a bit like taking the screenshot before the social media post is deleted, right? It's it's a yep. way of going back to earlier versions of what was. What reason yep. has Google given? They just really haven't given a reason other than, oh, well, you know, we did this back when the web was unreliable and you couldn't necessarily always get to a website, but the web's always reliable now, so... Yeah, right. So that's kind of some hand-waving around it. I think it's probably serving some other purpose in Google around keeping people on the current version of a page rather than on the previous version, which may not have the same tracking, the same advertising, all of that. So I think it's probably that as well. But it doesn't really, there's no obvious reason beyond the, oh, well, we've outgrown it, which doesn't really feel right. No, but I'm also curious about this other organization. I mean, what is involved in caching or, or keeping a copy of the entire web? That's got to take some kind of grunty computer. Now, you'd be surprised. The Internet Archive does have, I think it's a couple of petabytes of storage, and they basically slowly just copy the entire web. And you can go to their website and go to the archive and basically pick a date and pick a website, and it will show you the snapshot of the website from that date all the way back to about 1996. So you're getting almost now 30 years of coverage. So that is not hard to do. It's not so much that it's huge. They do have some resources, and this is one reason why they survive on donations. It's more that that's a resource that needs to be available to as many people as possible. And when Google was doing that, that resource was much more widely available. Now the whole weight is going to fall on the Internet Archive. Thank you, Mark. It's always appreciated. Mark Pesci, tech correspondent.